Welcome to Season 5 of the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we talk with enterprise and technology platform leaders about the people, processes, and platforms that make marketing and customer experience successful, scalable, and sustainable. This is what creates an Agile brand. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom, advisor and consultant for Fortune 1000 marketing and CX leaders and teams as principal and chief strategist at GK5A and best-selling author, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and Agile certified coach. The Agile Brand Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to teksystems.com. To sign up for the Agile Brand newsletter and get the latest insights and articles on marketing technology and CX, or to purchase a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, go to gregkillstrom.com. You can also find all my books on Amazon and other retailers. And now on to the show. Today, we're going to talk about making meaningful changes within an organization to create greater customer outcomes. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Anthony Coppage, Principal Agile Digital Sales Global Transformation Lead at IBM. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hey, Ben, it's great to be back, Greg. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I should say welcome back to the show. Yeah, you're a, you're a returning champion here. So, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so for those that didn't catch the, the first episode that you were on, why don't, you, why don't you give a little background on yourself and what you're currently doing at IBM? Oh, I'm just this guy, you know. Uh, so my, my work has been in the world of agility, but in business agility, where I'm looking at the values and principles of how do we help deliver greater value, not just get more stuff done. And what does it look like to orient that around the orbit of our clients and our prospects? What does it look like to help us think about the value we create and deliver so that the results that we get from that, the outcomes that we get from that, are better aligned to deliver not just current value, but future value. And I'm very focused on this value conversation, this value topic, because the idea is that anybody can deliver a product or a service, but value takes extra effort. And so it's the idea of exceeding an expectation of doing something that is for the benefit of others. That's the idea of delivering this value. And I want to make it such a natural part of the conversation for my staff, my teams, the people I work with, the leaders that I have influence. I want to help them think about it that way. I want to reframe us away from what got us to where we are to consider what could get us to where we want to be. And I'm convinced the world now needs that transformative thinking, that client first, the, the way to deliver and, and focus on value. Because I believe when value is the focus, price is not. And I almost guarantee that if price is a focus, value is not. So I want to shift it and I want us to think about it from those perspectives. So in my role at IBM, uh, that's a large part of how I go about my day to day is instilling those values, principles and those concepts so that we ask better questions, not just come up with better answers. Wonderful. Love it. Love it. And so along those lines, uh, uh, let's start by talking a bit about the concept of measuring the customer lifetime value. Uh, so mm -hmm. this is something I've certainly written, written about quite a bit. Um, you and I have chatted about um, quite a bit as well. And you know, it's a very important measurement for organizations to understand. And I recommend you know, treating it as a, as a primary KPI. So when we were prepping for the show, you had a, an interesting take on it and wanted to talk a little bit about the, a little more about that. So quite often customer lifetime value or CLV is, is looked at from the perspective of the brand. So in other words, how much money or value can we extract from a particular customer over the entirety of the relationship with our brand? 
What are some of the downfalls with solely looking at this from the brand perspective and, and what additional aspects should we be keeping in mind? Anytime we start with thinking about what's in it for us, we run the risk of not creating and delivering value for the client. So if I want to tip my revenue numbers, it's possible for someone to sell someone, uh, a client, something that isn't really what they need. It may be okay. It may even help with some things, but it's not really adding value. It's just to band-aid um, at best. Or worse, it's entirely possible, and I think some of us experience this, we've been sold on something somewhere, and we didn't really need it, and it wasn't actually correct. They didn't qualify us well. We just we bought out of some naivete. I know I've done that in the past. And so I want to eliminate that as much as possible. I want There's bad actors, of course, but assuming we've got the right culture and then we're doing the right job with how we mentor and train and equip and empower people, we shouldn't have that as a, as a variable. So in my mind, uh, let me put COV as the customer lifetime value is about what's in it for them, not what's in it for us. Yeah. yeah. So in most companies, we look at the lifetime value of a customer as, oh, if we sell more than one product or service, the value to our business, the revenue impact of our business goes up by some multiplier. Yeah. That's very typical in business. And so they look at, okay, don't just get the client, keep the client and then sell them more. That's right. a very common mantra. And it's not wrong in the sense that if you do that well, you should be delivering value. But I will tell you, there is no guarantee that you are. The guarantee comes when you absolutely align your service level agreements, your SLAs, against what's successful for them, not what's successful for you. So I want to flip it and say, if the customer lifetime value is not about how much more money we make because they stick with us and buy more stuff. And is instead about how can we define, understand, measure, articulate, and represent all of the value that they get from working with us, our tools, products, services, whatever. That's a game changer because who wants to leave value on the table? Yeah, yeah. Nobody. Absolutely. They want to benefit more and more and more. And so, of course, they do. It benefits their customers, right? They're in business to be in business to serve their customers. We're in business to serve our customers. This is true of every organization selling today. So the idea that we want to get more from someone is backwards thinking. It's old school. It's, it's the uh, extraction of value rather than the creation of value. Yeah. And I want to flip that on its head and say, no, no, no. We actually want to measure what kind of impact you're making Mr. and Mrs. Customer, what it looks like for you to be successful, because that helps us determine how we help in the future. And we make sure that what we're doing is delivering the most value for you. It might even affect some of our roadmaps and our decisions because you're going to teach us things. And it's this posture that makes the difference because I can't imagine very many people walking away from getting more value for their business. Right. That's not a conversation you hear about. You do hear about people saying we need a better price. Yeah. We, we need to spend less money. We need to, you know, whatever. But the, there's, it starts with that mindset, whom are you doing this for? And it should be for their benefit. By the way, Greg, if I add value to you and I can demonstrate that value and we can even measure that value and we can show how there's more value if you do more with us, you're not likely to ever come to me and go, you know, it's just not working. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. It's clearly working. And what ends up changing about that is you're not going to come to me very often and say, hey, I need a price reduction. Because I can say price, a totally different subject. I would be happy. And, I, and I've done this in so many situations where someone comes in and they call it, uh, what's the term? Um, uh, 
value engineering, right? Yeah. <laughs> I hate that term. It's like, the, oh, I'm just going to reduce some of the line items. I'm going to reduce some of the scope and expect the same result. Yeah. And, and and pay less for it. And so what I say is, well, we've demonstrated that we could get you between two and 300% increase in the outcomes that you're trying to measure if you leverage our tools, process systems, whatever it is, right? Yeah. If that's true and you go, yeah, but I want to pay half that, I go, well, I'm pretty sure we can get you 100% more, but it's not going to be two or 300%. Let's do the math on that and figure it out. No, 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 no. I, I want that 300% return. Well, to get that, you have to put something into that. And so nothing's free. Yeah. So if, if the price is the point, no problem, we can work with you on price, but I, I thought you wanted the greater value. You know what ends up happening is when you write a proposal or you, you meet with the people and you're having this discussion, it's funny how money shows up when you say, well, we can reduce scope, but then you're, the benefit to you is reduced. Are yeah. you comfortable with that? Usually people are like, well, no, actually we came to you because we want that value. Well, oh, okay, here's the price. Yeah, it's not a emotional decision because all of sales involves emotion. This is now a logical statement where I go, what do you value? And it's not on me to sell it to you because yeah. what I'm doing is asking you to define what's valuable for you, yeah. for your brand, for your organization. And then, oh, by the way, there's a price. That's a game changer. And what it does is it makes the customer lifetime value go up, not because I sold more stuff. That's the byproduct. Yeah. It's because you received, understood, measured, and experienced more value. So what does that do? How does that change the way that you measure all of this? You know, I mean, we're talking about measurement here. And, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen some kind of CLV model. And, you know, a lot of that is is predicated on, the first thing that you're saying, you know, a very um, let's sell more stuff model versus let's create value. So what, how does, how does this way of thinking change the way that you measure for, for customer lifetime value? Do I still measure revenue? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Do I still measure vo uh, volume and velocity? Yeah, probably. But I don't measure them as my success or criteria. I measure them as leading indicators or sometimes lagging indicators, depending on the things I need to do in order to understand what needs to be measured. In other words, they're a part of the step. They're not the step. The step is saying, hey, how do you measure your success? Uh, with, so if we're helping you with software, or if we're helping with hardware, we're helping with process, whatever it is that you're selling, we're trying to understand based on the requirements gathering and the discovery we've done, that there's an impact we've calculated based on some variables that if we agree on those things, we should be able to achieve between X and Y, right? Yeah. Sometimes that's harder to do than others. And I know some people are like, you can't always do that. Well, you can, it's just not always precise. And what you want to do is learn over time. The point is not to be right. The point is not to come with better answers. The point is to ask better questions yeah. because that's how you learn. And if you want to perform better, then you better learn how to learn better. Because if you learn, iterate, pivot, adjust and improve, you'll eventually not only perform to the level you want, you'll probably you have a very high likelihood of outperforming. Yeah. And what ends up happening is we get so focused on the performance of the number that we go, there's a reason that number is or isn't. Don't ask what it is. Ask why is it that? And when we start asking customers often, they don't know. They don't know why. They just know I need X. Okay, well, why do you need X? Well, so-and-so asked for it. Why is someone so asking for it? I don't know. Well, let's bring that person into the conversation. Yeah. Let's understand what the need is and the pain point or the opportunity, because those are the only two reasons people buy. They're solving a problem or they're addressing an opportunity, full stop. There's no other reasons. So what I want to do is identify that and go, well, to what extent do we think we can do that? What are the resources, time, commitment, whatever variables that we would try to understand? 
So when you do that kind of diligence and you do that kind of work, um, and we're talking typically, this is going to be some sort of solution sale, not a point sale. This is yeah. not a, a thing you would do um, as a transactional at a cash register. Right. But you know, if you're talking about a B2B or a large B2C type situation, what you're looking at is how do you think about what's in it for them and how do they measure success? When you get that data, it makes it very easy then to go back and go, well, if that's what you're trying to achieve, these are the things we would be able to impact. Here's the degree that we think we can. Here's your historical averages with other similar companies, et cetera. And here's what we want to do. So now we build a service level agreement, an SLA, that says we're looking to help you do this. And we have pivot points and checkpoints all throughout to not say, did you achieve it at the end of the year, but to learn why we aren't our are, are, are not achieving it yeah. because it's a learning discovery journey. We, we're going to walk with you through the journey, not ha- thanks for the check. See you later. Talk to you when it's time to renew. We're going right. to, that's the big difference. So in a value proposition oriented sale, you have to walk that value proposition all the way through, not just to the point of sale, but all the way through because the customer lifetime value doesn't end at the purchase it begins often at the purchase. Yeah, so yeah. You, you've got to think that way. And that's how you see COV as being measured. You do still measure those other things, Greg, to your point, but you learn about what do they indicate, not what do they achieve on their own. Yeah, great. Yeah, love it. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears just a little bit. And um, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about your experience leading and enabling change within a large organization, and in this case, IBM. Yep. So your role as principal agile, principal agile digital sales global <laughs> transformation lead. Say that three times um, at IBM. That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a lot a lot of words in there. Uh, but can you talk about how you started in this role and you know what were the type of changes that were required to really you know grow grow your role into what it is today? So that that title, that very long title, which let me just sum up is I help lead us to how do we become the future version of digital sales for the benefit of our customers and the markets, right? So that's that's the idea of how do we change that thinking? And I'm doing that with specific types of sub teams inside the digital sales organization from our sales center growth and a digitization sales hub and the things we're doing. I'm trying to help ask those better questions, Greg. Yeah. So to enable change, I have to understand not what is the change, why is the change? Why are we changing? What's what's the value we're trying to achieve? What's our success criteria? And so we we articulate that. So it started not at the end here where, where I'm at in this role. It started with, hey, can you come as a contractor and help us in North America alone with these 26 sales centers? And uh, our, we're, we're tied at the hip with marketing. Marketing is being agile marketing is this term right. that the, we, we hear about in sales. We don't know what agile marketing means. We don't know what agile sales means do you. And at the time when I came in in 2019, I could not find a single example of agile sales at an enterprise level. I couldn't find it. So in in a sense, we're inventing, but we're not because what we're doing is we're leaning on the principles and values of respect, openness, courage, empathy, and trust. Those are the five values. And then the three principles are clarity of purpose, the ability to have a test and, and experiment frequently, hypothesis testing and experimenting frequently, and self-directed teams and self-directed actions. So if if those five values and three principles need to be present, what would it take to make those true? 
Not what are we going to do? What does it take to make those true? So I started with that. And we came up with something that helped us frame that in our own version, um, saying, how would we do this? And so we're ruthlessly eliminating low value buffer. We're improving the ability to deliver value. We are incorporating feedback loops. So we found ways to articulate this over time by working with sales and leadership and coming to a conclusion that, well, in order for those five values and three principles to be realized, these things would have to change. So that change management started in a very tactical focus with how do we do this with teams, which by the way, sales teams, very different from every other kind of agile team I worked with because they're individually motored and individually compensated, right? So they're not together to go, I'm going to do this part of the project. You're going to do that part and we're going to come together and deliver some product or service. Nope. So you've got to say, well, well, that's the biggest value. And it was easy to discover for me at least with the teams I worked with, that the greatest value was a rising tide lifts all boats. So it's not a zero-sum game. If, if, if a seller in Atlanta figures out that this particular sales play has a much higher return and a much better click-through rate and a way better conversion rate because of these factors, we'll then share that because now anybody doing that would benefit from that. And so it doesn't take away from their quota. It doesn't take away from their ability to deliver value or their success to share because it's not a, it's not one pie that you have just different slices of it's unlimited. So we wanted them to have a, a, to foster a sense of sharing. And you hear about this with sales teams, you know, in different organizations I've been involved with, but you didn't see it operationalized like this. And that's really what I'm trying to do. I really want to operationalize it so we can create and deliver value for clients. So I, I do that. And I just do that by asking these questions until people come to this conclusion, because I know I'm not the expert. I know they are. What I know is I need to help them think differently so that they can come to conclusions different from the things that got them to where they are. Right. Because that's the definition of change. So it started with 26 tactical teams that then led to, okay, well, then in marketing, how do you tie marketing with sales together? And so I was the agile coach for the CMO and I worked with the the leaders on the multiple levers that my BM was was applying and the way we were making this shift over to true content marketing automation. And, And it was really fun to be a part of a team of people that did that. And then from there, I got the opportunity to do the current role, which is at a global level across all of digital sales, how do we apply agility at scale? And and that's what I'm doing today. Before we continue, I'd like to make sure you're aware of the upcoming CXPS 2023 conference, May 8 through 11, 2023 in Durham, North Carolina. CXPS is a great CX event focused on professional services firms that want to know how to take the next steps to make their firm successful in integrating client experience with their firm's strategic initiatives. To learn more and register for the conference, go to clientexperience.org slash CXPS conference. That's clientexperience.org slash CXPS conference. And you can register with the code AGILE200, that's A-G-I-L-E-200, for $200 off your tickets. You can hear from top professional services executives and CX thought leaders like myself through a combination of keynotes, breakout sessions, workshops, and panel discussions. Make sure to register at clientexperience.org slash CXPS dash conference with the code agile 200 for $200 off your tickets. Now let's get back to the show. 
you know, I've, I've worked with plenty of fortune 500, 100, even 50 companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's some stereotypical things about how quickly change happens and silos and bureaucracy. And, you know, I would say at least some of those are true. Um, and depending on the org and so, you know, change doesn't always happen quickly. It doesn't always happen easily. And, you know, for, for a lot, some good reasons, some, some less than good reasons, but what's one of the most important things you learned about, I mean, you've made some pretty large scale changes in a large organization, IBM. What's, what's some of the most important things that you learned just by, by doing that? One of the things I learned was that something I was told and taught proved to be true at at an even larger scale. And that was this. My friend Jeff Hook, a former CEO I worked with on, a, on one of his companies, said it this way, change is always bad in the short term. Yeah. And I thought that was such an interesting statement. I'm like, well, change isn't bad. And he's like, no, no, no. To every human, change is bad in the short term. And if you look at the, the work of Dr. Virginia Satir, or you look at the Kubler-Ross model, or even the Tuckman model, yeah. all these models describe humanity, the way humans accept or reject or work through change. And it's always a curve. It always goes up a little bit at the beginning. It always dips very deep. And then there's a slow rise out of it. And then eventually you want to get to a place where you're doing even better than you were before. It's the whole point of the change is to be beyond, better, beyond, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, but not to get back to status quo. You're trying to exceed that. But that dip is inevitable. And yeah. what Jeff was saying is that it's bad where bad is hard, different, unusual, challenging, requires me to learn something. And so people don't like that. They like comfort. They like to know what they know and be and feel very comfortable, even if what they're comfortable doing isn't working and they know it. Yeah. They will at least feel comfortable in it. Now, yeah. really good reason to change if something's not working, but but you have to have the patience to understand people are going to see it as bad before they see it as good. Yeah. Some people see it much faster than others, but that truth, boy, I saw that at scale. And the funny thing was, is that you would see success and people, we would have measurable, notable success and people would still go, yeah, but I, it, it's it just, it's a lot of work. I'm like, well, great results are, yeah. if you want great, you don't do it by averaging good. Yeah. <laughs> so right. you're going right. to have to choose something different. And that different is probably going to be harder. Now you doesn't have to be more work. It can be different work. In fact, I think the best way to improve is to eliminate and reduce waste, right? Some of the lean principles here come right to four, but it's the idea there's only two ways to improve. You either optimize upside, which usually is fairly difficult to do because there's a lot of of things required to optimize upside, or the easier and often better thing to do first is to reduce downside. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a phrase for that. Stop the stupid. (laughs) Not stupid people, stupid processes, stupid systems, something that served us well at one point, but is now outmoded. Yeah, We used to do it this way and well, but now these three systems still talk. And if you're in a large company, you have more than three systems, I guarantee it, right? So you have this huge bureaucracy of things that existed for a really good reason that now need to be evaluated if, should we keep doing that? Should we blow that up? Should we change that? Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's really hard. But the point was not, did I do more stuff? The point was what happened because we did it differently and yeah. you're constantly iterating and evaluating that. So the change didn't happen overnight, but you'd have these bursts of improvements, bursts of change, bursts of success, and equally bursts of things that didn't work, bursts of things that were a complete, like what happened? Why, how did we miss that one so bad? And you know what? Both are incredibly valuable and I celebrate both. 
I don't just celebrate the wins because if we're not learning, we'll get stagnant. We'll rest on our laurels. So if we're experimenting by nature, we're losing by nature. We're failing except I don't like those terms because if you're really failing, it means you it's too late. But if you're experimenting, it's probably not too late. It just means you learn something. Now you know what not to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think um, you mentioned the the Kubler-Ross curve. And I, I use that actually in, in my book, House of the Customer, as an example. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's really interesting that that curve, you know, when, when you talk about it from a business context, it's about managing and adapting to change. But some of the real origins, at least from what I was reading, it's actually the stages of grief. So, yeah, it is stages of grief. Yeah. Anger, denial, you know, sadness, depression, and then acceptance and then reconciliation and the ability. Yeah. yeah. All, but that's because human, not because business. Exactly. Because human. And if you employ humans, they're going to be human. Expect yeah. it. Yeah. You know, I and it's like you work with people and I, you know, very recently worked with some people at a at a company, you know, very set in their ways and they they love their they love what they do, but the organization was in need of a big transformation in the way that things were happening. And I could really see that at play of there, there was this like, okay, I'm losing something that, you know, they, they took pride in their work and in the way the, of doing things and they couldn't see, we helped them to see. And, you know, that's kind of, that's part of the job, right. Of the, of the coach, the consultant or, or whatever, but you know, it was really hard to see kind of one step, two steps beyond that because, the change was so big and, and felt so, you know, like they were, they were losing something, not that they were going to gain something. Yeah. You have to make the change worthwhile. And so you have to find some sort of promise that you can make some sort of hope for the future. For me, it was very simple. I want to change the way our teams work so that we are far more empowered to not only delegate the responsibility, but to delegate the authority down so that the teams doing the work are telling us what they need us to do, not the other way around. And in order to do that, we had to change how we measured and what we measured because you didn't just measure the outputs. Now we measured why was it that output? What was the correlation, not just the causality? And because there's usually extenuating circumstances or business process rules or governance or politics or whatever, personalities. There's a lot of reasons why something is or isn't a certain way. And when you just take the emotion out of it and you don't point a finger at a person, but you talk about the thing, that's less threatening and that's less scary. So what I said was, I know in my work, remember those 26 teams, I know in my work that if you will shift this new way of working, this this model, not a framework, that on average, you will get 30 to 35% of your calendar back yeah. free. Yeah. And, and I know that's true. And in fact, it's for some people it was higher than that because it's easier for people to inspect by having all the people come together and do a status update and talk about it so that the person doing that doesn't actually have to do the work to try to understand why is that the case? They just, they want everybody to come to them. That is an incredibly uh, expensive and inefficient way to work. You've done two things. One, you've made people do double work. I did the work and now I got to describe how I did the work so that you can understand the work that was done. And I'm not doing the work because I'm sitting here telling you about the work that was already done and I'm not able to work on new work. Like, why are we doing that? (laughs) So if we just eliminate that, I call that stop the stupid, right? It's just, it's a stupid thing. So let's not do that. And let's instead have, we'll have a way to represent our progress. We will do that every two weeks. We will do that 
as a showcase or a way to highlight, demonstrate, but we will change much faster than that. We'll change within a day. We'll change within hours if necessary, because we don't wait for approval. We go with the authority to make the change and then go, here's what we're learning. Are you cool with this? Or what do you think about this? And it's a game changer because now the people closest to the problem are also creating the opportunities closest to create the solution. And and those are the right people. So you don't want to tie them up with meetings. So for me, one of the things we measured was how do we prioritize the delivery of value, not how do we measure how much stuff got done? It's a huge change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's um, we, we've touched on this a bit already, but let's let's talk about the role of agile and and all of this. And so you know you've had experience working with a lot of different teams, as you mentioned yep. that uh, within IBM as well as others. But um, what are some of the common misconceptions that you've seen in teams before they start using agile practices? Like what what are some of the because I think a lot of this is overcoming, you know, some some initial objections, so people kind of open up their minds to to new things. So, you know, what what are some of the misconceptions that you've seen? That's a good question. Um, so, when it comes to agile, big A agile, capital A agile, mm-hmm. I think the two biggest misconceptions is people think they know what it means and they don't, <laughs> or they've not seen it done well, yeah. or they've seen it done in a certain framework and they think that's agile. So, for example, Scrum isn't agile. Scrum was actually created before the word Agile existed. So if anything, Agile has some roots in Scrum, but Scrum's not Agile. So that's one. Uh, And Scrum's probably the biggest one because Agile started with software development, right? That was the the software, original manifesto was around software. But the principles of it were so compelling. And the framework of it was the model they used, excuse me, was so good. They said, we value this over that. We value this over that. And I'm not quoting those things on purpose because the this and the that aren't important. Sure. What's important is the this over that, not this instead of that. Because you're never going to truly get away from having to do some business as usual kind of work. You're never, it's just a reality of any, especially large enterprise. There's just some level of stuff you got to do that you're still going to do. We're not going to eliminate that. We're just going to mitigate it. We're going to do the least amount of that possible so that the majority of our effort to spend on things that actually deliver greater value than just BAU processes, BAU being business as usual. So I took it and said, well, what if we said we value things for the way we work and for the benefit of our clients and prospects and business partners. And so we wrote it, we wrote it differently, but it was the principle that that, that same layout worked. So the misconception of agile is scrum. Um, agile is for software developers only. Agile is a buzzword. Uh, doesn't mean anything. Right. Agile is safe. Agile is whatever. Uh, no, that's just a misunderstanding. Agility, the idea of saying there's a way to be iterative, to figure out how we work in small chunks. We, we, we take little small risks. We do it really frequently and we learn at a much faster pace and we empower those doing the work to tell us what to do. And we do this for the sake of delivering value. We inspect that, we look at it and we, we reflect on it and we come back and try to make it a little bit better. And we're never really done with that. What we're trying to do is say, we know we don't know, but we know we can know. And so we're going to learn how to be a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And then there's a point of diminishing returns on some things. And then you find a new area to focus on that can be better. Cause I mean, there's always plenty. If you're in an, if you're in an enterprise, plenty, you're not going to run out. So what we wanted to do is say agile is a bad word to a lot of you. 
I don't actually use the word agile a whole lot at IBM. I talk about what do we want to do to create and deliver client value, which we started this podcast with. Well, the way we're going to do that is going to be with objectives and key results and business agility. And I talk about clarity with alignment as being why we have this OKRs, objectives and key results, and iterative ways of working is just agile. But I don't use the terms because people think they know what that means and they usually have a preconceived negative notion. So I'm like, "Mm, what if the principles are universal and translate? And what if we define our future? Because you're going to tell me, because you're the expert, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. It's a game changer because it puts it puts me in a position to not tell them what to do, to not continue to be a command and control person, but instead to say, I'm here to describe, not prescribe. Yeah. I'm here to support and serve, not inspect and mandate. And those are game changers because you're building a different culture. That's psychological safety. That's trust. That's relational equity. When you do that, the way to be agile then comes out in spades because it's not doing agile. Yeah, yeah. So then when you're when you're working with the teams, how do you find the right balance between, you know, sticking to a process, whatever, whatever the, you know, if it's if it's scrum safe, or just whatever it may be? How do you find the right balance between, you know, adherence to a process and and guidelines? And I don't. Okay, let me just stop you. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Right. And I'm stopping you because it's the it's not that you're asking the wrong question. It's the wrong belief system to start with. Yeah. No system can be universally applied to every company, every culture, every organization at every yeah. size. Not possible. Agreed. It's, that's, that's just universally impossible. Even in infrastructure, think about our, our highway systems and our roads. We don't build roads exactly the same way. We don't build highways because the needs are different. The environment's different. The funding's different. I mean, pick it, right? There's a lot of reasons you would do it different. But fundamentally, we still help people get from A to B, and we try to do so in a safe manner, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of the universal value. Is is this safe? Does it follow a universal set of, of values and principles that no matter where you're driving in the world, those, I mean, there's a few countries that have like no rules. I mean, there's <laughs> right, that. Right. There's some feel that way too, but yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But but if you're talking about generally in, in the westernized world, I'll put it this way, mm-hmm. that there, there's a very common set of, regardless of which side of the road you drive on, there's there's still a common set of motorist behaviors and an ethos that, that translates because the values and principles translate. Yeah. So you don't have to have exactly the same rules as someone else. That's not the point. The point is, are you applying them in a way that really works well for your context and your culture? Because that's what's going to help you be agile, not do agile. Yeah, yeah, love it. Well, yeah, I always love talking with you um, about this stuff. So one, one last co- question before we wrap up here. So, you know, we've talked a lot about large scale change and what that looks like, you know, before, during and, and, and after even, you know, what, what's a piece of advice that you'd have for leaders that know big changes are needed, but you know, they're just, they're just not really sure where to start. What, what should they be thinking about? There's a big thing they want them to think about. And then there's a smaller thing I want them to think about, Greg. The big thing is, do you have an inspiring, compelling and aspirational vision for what must be, what should be for the benefit of others. Do you have that? 
if you don't have that, you're not likely to ever really do much more than what you're currently doing. But if, because what got you to where you are will not get you to where you want to be. People get behind vision. People get behind inspired ideas and ways, but you got to trust them. You got to have the vision and then say, I'm putting the vision in front of you. Now you tell me what you think it'll take to get there. You do not prescribe the route. You describe the destination. When John F. Kennedy was president, he he did this big famous speech at Rice University and said, we're going to put a person on the moon by the end of the decade. That was audacious. That was like, wow, that's huge. Now, there's some political context going on, right? Space race and Sputnik had been launched. And so this is the idea of we're, we're going to get there before the Russians and all the game. Well, whatever. But, but there's this, this grand idea of what would happen if we could do this thing that's what we now call a moonshot. What would happen if we could do that? Wouldn't that be audacious and amazing? And could we do it? Yeah, we think we can. And he says, we're unwilling to postpone it. We're unwilling to not do this. So there is a compelling vision that says we're in, we're in. And people got really excited about that. What happened next was not President Kennedy going, all right, let me tell you, we're going to need this many rockets. <laughs> and we're going to need this many lunar modules. And we're going to have to figure out how to scrub carbon dioxide. He didn't manage all of that. Yeah. He had a compelling vision. And then he got out of the way and said, you tell me what it's going to take. You tell us what it's going to take. But remember, we're going to the moon. Remember, we're going to do these things so that we advance education. We have a better version of humankind. We, we, we leverage new technologies, new ways of observation, and understand about our universe. There's going to be real implications for this work. Going to the moon was a big idea, but what came from going to the moon was huge. You know how much we have today because of, of space programs? It's remarkable yeah. the advancements and innovations that came out of that. There was the big why, but but that's not compelling. You know, one day everybody should have a microwave in their home. You know, one day we'll have Velcro. Uh, one day, yet no one really had those right, small right. little, but there was this big vision. Have a big vision and then stick to that. And what you're doing is you're sticking to this desired future state, not the road to get there. Yeah. You have to trust people in your organization who are the experts and bring people in to help you make that vision a reality. And that vision should be compelling, not just to you and your team, but to who you serve. That should help them be successful. That should help them be better. That should help get them excited. That's a great vision. So at the top level, everybody says, oh yeah, you got to have a vision. I'm like, mm -mm. you don't just have to have a vision. You have, to, you have to really own that vision. And you have to repeat the vision so much, Greg, that you're tired of saying it. That's about the time most people start to get it. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be relentless because a vision is not an idea. An idea is what could be. A vision is what should be. And you need to be in that level of commitment, that level of buy-in yourself if you expect anybody else to come along. So that's the big idea. The more practical thing, and I'll wrap up with this, Greg, is this. You have to go determine how much you're willing to lead change in your culture. Mm. Yeah, You, leader. It's not going to be up to us to tell you how that happens. You're we're going to you're going to observe it because culture is not what you say it is, it's what people do. It's what the actions met out, right? Yeah. And so when we when we reward jerks who are high performers, there's your culture. Right, right. If you reward People having activity metrics as success criteria, there's your culture. People who game the system, they'll they'll get by. And they'll probably get paid fairly well for it because you have the wrong metrics, right? Instead, what you've got to do is say, are we willing to look at the way 
we are together and are we willing to build respect, openness, courage, empathy, and trust into everything we do? And are we willing to push control down, assure technical competence and have clarity of mission? By the way, that little threesome right there comes right from the book, Turn the Ship Around by David Marquette. Great stuff. Are you willing to say, I know where we go, you know how to get us there. And I want to help you do that because that's a culture shift. And oh, by the way, agile at its core is a culture play. Because if you change the culture, boy, anything can change. But if you don't change the culture, pretty low likelihood, any great idea even is going to stick because people will default back to what doesn't work because at least it's comfortable. You have to push for something different. You have to be willing to be the change agent, not just hand it off to the VP of HR. This, you know, you you have got to say as leaders, we will embody the culture we want for the future. And that is really hard because it means the things that got you to where you are, you're gonna have to walk away from some of that. Because a transformation is not putting butterfly wings on a caterpillar. It's not putting roller skates on a rocket motor on the back of a caterpillar and going, what a great butterfly. Right. It's not a butterfly, right? It's a faster caterpillar, a streamlined, optimized caterpillar is never the goal. Yeah. The goal is a butterfly. That's a transformation from one state of being to another. What could your company look like to retain this DNA of the caterpillar, but have the expression of the butterfly? What would that look like? That's culture. And it's going to be up to you not to tell people what it is, but to live it out and then ensure that up and down throughout the organization, across and throughout, that that is embodied and represented and actually leads to change. Because there's going to be what it's going to take to truly be agile. And I don't know how many people are really ready for that. Yeah. Because honestly, that's double tough. That's hard. But there's the answers that I would give any leader. Yeah. Yeah. No, love it. Great, great advice there. Well, again, I'd like to thank Anthony Coppage, Principal Agile Digital Sales Global Transformation Lead at IBM for joining the show. You can learn more about Anthony and IBM by following the links in the show notes. Talk with you next week. Thanks again for listening to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.gregkilstrom.com. That's G-R-E-G-K-I-H-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. To get a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, visit my website or you can find it on Amazon or other retailers. The Agile brand is produced by Missing Link a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, they craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, stay agile. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.